Warning. Nobody gives a damn how many dumb sheep flock to Washington demonstrations, which are dull ceremonies of dissent that won't stop the war. Who, who is that? That's a quote, right? Yeah, that's a quote from a pamphlet that was distributed by a group um, in the early 1970s called the May Day Tribe, which engaged in anti-war direct action against the United States government for the war in Vietnam. Their slogan was, if the government won't shut down the war... The people will shut down the government. Not fans of protests then, I guess, eh? No, yeah, they were pretty harsh to just like the typical kind of sign-waving, march-having protests. They were, I'd say, a little overly negative about that. Yeah, there's some good parts to that, you know? Mm -hmm. So they've been criticizing that stuff since the 70s, pointing out that walking with signs down the street doesn't really (laughs) do anything by itself. Uh, Makes for great footage, though, for like historical documentaries of the time about how people were opposed to the war. The book that I got this quote from, which is called Direct Action, it's by L.A. Kaufman. It goes on to say their hope would be that May Day wouldn't be a standard protest rally where a series of speakers usually chosen through an acrimonious behind the scenes struggle would lecture a passive crowd. Uh, There's a quote from a political radical after an event that was like a very standard march. The quote is, should I take pictures? I kept asking myself. Or would photographs from past identical rallies suffice? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Hugh said in the comics episode, you've seen pictures of one protest, you've seen them all. Yeah. But yeah, welcome uh, to the Seriously Wrong Podcast, everyone. My name's Sean. (laughs) My name's Aaron. And... This is the show. It's not getting any better at not being awkward about the intros. (laughs) Uh... (laughs) Welcome to the show, everyone. This week's episode is about diversity of tactics. We're going to hop right into it. But before we get there, I just want to thank our Patreon donators for making such a big difference and chipping in money each month. Thank you so much for that. Now on with the show. Intro music. Now. Mm. (laughs) When you're wrong. So yeah, like the phrase diversity of tactics in political discourse is for the most part a code phrase for sometimes it's okay to use violence. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely the context I was introduced to the phrase diversity of tactics. I never heard it before even once in my life until it was around the time there started to be like factionalism within the Occupy movement, which was like my first sort of taste of general left activism. Right. And there being some disputes over who was being a liberal about breaking store (laughs) windows, that type of stuff. And that's when I was introduced to the diversity of tactics is like, we need to support diversity of tactics. In this case, diversity of tactics means allowing black bloc members to break store windows or antagonize like local business owners in various ways. And we need to support that because it's one of the tactics and having diverse tactics is ideal. 
apart from me and you, I've never heard anyone say diverse tactics like running for office. Yeah, like, <laughs> like starting like a group an NPO. <laughs> like you're you're at <laughs> you're at you're at a planning meeting for like a Starbucks window break in black mask wearing thing. It's like okay, everyone, yeah, like, we're going to do that, of course. But diversity of tactics, we're also going to show some support for the local political candidate that we think is closest to our values. Like it just, it doesn't come up in that context. Mm. <laughs> but anyway, they have a point. I mean, we can talk about Starbucks windows or not. I'm not that interested in it, but sometimes violence is actually a good thing. Or like there's instances of historical uses of violence that you just hear about and are like, yeah, well, like that was the right thing to do. Yeah, it's interesting because political violence has such a mythological connection to the United States where they're founded in a revolution. It's just funny. It's kind of funny how like liberals can kind of have this weird view of violence where like if violence is done by citizens in any way, like just average citizens, it's this horrible thing that's a breakdown of political order Yeah. versus say like the violence of militaries, which is righteous because you're fighting the Nazis. Like violence of citizens can be good if it was in the past, then we can kind of trace a line from that violence to something else good happening later, then it can be justified. But like violence happening in the present, and I totally have this bias, is just like... Uh, do we really need to do that? Like, yeah. <laughs> like, like I imagine if I was alive at the time of the Stonewall riots where they're like throwing shit at cops and like having like physically violent clashes with the police about gay rights. I'm sure I would have had the thought like, oh, we're just antagonizing them. We're never going to get rights this way. We're never do-. But now this event is like lionized as like it's the a turning canonical point. piece of, yeah. uh, of, of <laughs> gay rights like, like a, a watershed moment yeah, in, in the turning of gay rights into a public issue that became a civil rights movement. And so it's like if you can contextualize the violence within a story that led to something good, then it makes sense. But just seeing it happening on its own, it's easy to be like, ooh, mm, makes me uneasy. And I don't want to, I don't want to say yes to that. Yeah. And especially in the context of something like Occupy and the kind of post-Occupy affinity groups and movements that continued for a few years after that, Occupy, whether it's true or not, is really famous for not having achieved anything. Like you, (laughs) you like we've argued on the show that it achieved many great things, that it was a great movement. But it's kind of famous for not. Your average point of view on Occupy, it wasn't that it was this glorious watershed moment that led to the current sort of proliferation of a democratic socialism as a popular movement in the United States and stuff like the, the DSA or like Thomas Piketty's book, Capital in the 21st Century. We, we can tie all this stuff to like the Occupy moment and like all this stuff and we could assign it to that. But it is it's famous for for not doing anything right yeah so what they needed was guns like if all of those encampments had been armed encampments <laughs> and when the police came in to try and break them up they had fought back with weapons we'd be living in uh, perfect bernie like bernie would be the president right now it, yeah <laughs> hard, uh, no, it's gonna be a hard disagree for me but the um, on the subject it's your damn liberalism uh, on the subject of the historical violence being good present violence being bad there's also a similar bias with like 
violence far away good or violence far away okay mm. violence here bad yeah yeah yeah. Um, yeah and you can see that in the political establishment's view on like war in general like a war in syria is nothing to bat an eye about if there was a war in fucking michigan it would be a big deal <laughs> yeah <laughs> and a friend of mine called that something like the 100 mile diet of radicalism where like you support center left politicians locally that are like pro development and stuff and you're like oh it's the best we can do right but then you support like the radical insurgent guerrillas in brazil and the radical insurgent guerrillas in syria and like, right right yeah like you're all for the kurds and the ypg in the middle east right now and you're like yeah it's awesome these they got guns like women-led militias and stuff like this They'll fucking love it shoot the bad guys kill isis and start the democratic confederalist <laughs> world but like if a group of armed radical quasi-anarchist leftist communalists whatever you want to call them in the United States started like trying to take some territory and things. That's not even within a hundred miles of me. It's just anything on this continent, really. Uh, if it was in North America, I'd be like, Ooh, I don't know about this. You know, <laughs> Pull it my liberal collar here. I'm feeling <laughs> uncomfortable. <laughs> but so we, we have some historical examples of times where not only did violence work and violence was the proportionate thing to do, but violence achieved an outcome. That yeah, was yeah. unambiguously positive. Yeah, it's interesting. One of the articles I was reading has a variety of little episodes from the civil rights movement. And the civil rights movement in America for, for black civil rights is often largely seen as a nonviolent movement because Martin Luther King was like expressly venerating nonviolence and nonviolent tactics constantly, but there was violence within that move. The, 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 both of those pieces played a role in it. Like it was good to have this Martin Luther King figure, this nonviolent, like let's make peace work aspect to it. But then it was also good to have like black NRA chapters, the black Panthers confronting the KKK with guns. So, so here's one anecdote like that. This is from a reason article summarizing a book about this stuff. One of the first victories of the modern civil rights movement came at the point of many guns. In the spring of 1947, after a black man named Benny Montgomery was executed for murdering his white employer during a fight over wages, the local KKK threatened to take Montgomery's body from the funeral parlor and drag it through the streets of the town as a message to blacks who might consider assaulting whites. But when the Klansmen arrived at the funeral parlor, three dozen rifles belonging to members of the Monroe branch of the NAACP were trained on their motorcade and the Klansmen fled. The successful showdown convinced the president of the Monroe NAACP that resistance could be effective if we resisted in groups and if we resisted with guns. In addition to his duties with the NAACP, he established an all-black chapter of the NRA and used his NRA connections to procure better rifles and assault weapons for his constituents. Ten years after the funeral parlor incident, those guns were used to repel a Klan assault against a different NAACP leader's house. Immediately following that shootout, the Monroe City Council banned KKK motorcades, and according to Williams, the KKK stopped raiding their community. So yeah, that story makes you go like, 
fuck yeah like, yeah <laughs> like that was good that was proportionate <laughs> as fuck <laughs> i mean yeah using guns to repel a kkk assault against an naacp leader's house it's just like how, how can anyone disagree with that i mean unless you're in the kkk then i can see how you disagree with it but other than that <laughs> i, I kind of want to point out also like this is kind of just like trying to provoke the straw man ultra radical in my head and in, in pointing out that like that did work and that was really good but what really sealed the deal was the institutional assist from the city council there was all these elected people on city council that won elections had the mandate of the people there and had the legal authority to change what was allowed and what wasn't and then to ban kkk motorcades in the in the city yeah which to me i mean should have done at the start of your mandate you know that's (laughs) (laughs) sure 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 but like if it took some people with guns standing off to the kkk to bring this thing to a head to the point where the lawmakers step in and in this instance anyway stepped in on the right side it's it's hard to argue with those results yeah so it's this fascinating thing because the threat of violence is so key to the success of this action but at the same time what marks the victory is the institutional assist i mean it's not the entire victory like intimidating the shit out of kkk scum and making them run home with their tail between their legs because they're afraid of dying that's fucking a victory in itself but that institutional assists really the cherry on top you know <laughs> it's really what makes it like damn well it's like if you're talking about diversity of tactics it's good to note the other tactics that would have been at play there because i'm sure in the absence of any other organizing for civil rights if it had just been like a black nra chapter standing up to the kkk with guns like that institutional assist might have gone in the wrong direction you know what I mean? Like there was this armed conflict and the lawmakers were like, okay, we have to do something to prevent this kind of thing from happening again. Who are we going to crack down on? The black NRA let's, or the KKK? Let's crack down on the fucking Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think the reason that that was in their head, that they made that choice rather than the other choice probably had to do with some other civil rights organizing going on at the same time. Yeah, no, and it's depressing to acknowledge that city councils historically the ball would be kind of up in the air on whether or not they crack down on black gun ownership rather than cracking down on it terrorizing a a couple decades earlier it would have been no contest who they're cracking down on and it wouldn't have been the kkk and another thing in a similar vein but 120 years earlier is uh the Southampton Insurrection or Nat Turner's Slave Rebellion, which was a slave rebellion that took place in Southampton, Virginia, 1931. Led by Nat Turner, rebel slaves killed 55 to 65 people and was the largest and deadliest slave uprising in U.S. history. The rebellion was put down within a few days, but there was widespread fear in the aftermath of the rebellion and white militias organized in retaliation to the slaves. The state executed 56 slaves accused of being part of the rebellion, and in the frenzy, many non-participant slaves were punished. Across the South, state legislators passed new laws prohibiting the education of slaves and free black people, restricting rights of assembly and other civil rights for free black people, and requiring white ministers to be present at all worship services. So the reason I read that all out is because it starts with this just like, fuck yeah, slave rebellion 
kill the fucking people who are keeping you in bondage. But it's also kind of a stark reminder of just like sometimes these things can have bad immediate after consequences anyway. Yeah, like history history is definitely shown a positive light on the, the people who stood up to slavery and fought it. But then the institutional consequences because of the power balances at the time tended towards reactionary negative consequences rather than liberatory ones. Yeah. And so it's, it's so weird because now you can talk about this slave rebellion in the context of, you know, there, there was continuous slave rebellions. There's a lot of them. This was just the biggest one, one of the most famous ones, but they were constantly happening throughout America. And I'm sure that like that's necessary to keep that spirit of rebellion alive. You know, like it's, I can see the usefulness of it, even if, you know, probably 10 years after it happened, you could have easily made the argument that that was a bad idea. All those slaves just ended up getting killed and the laws became even less favorable to black people after. Mm -hmm. So I just, I'm talking about it, I guess, because it seems 100% justified. The consequences are a little less clear cut that they were at least immediately positive, but you can definitely see some of the positive long-term effects and, and like it's really ambiguous and i like that about it because i think violence using violence is usually pretty ambiguous in mm. terms of it's going to have good consequences maybe sometimes and it's going to have got bad consequences maybe sometimes usually it's going to be both and it's probably going to be hard to sort out which was more important until a long time afterwards yeah, but now that human property is pretty much universally reviled as a bad thing, that horrific racism and the mistreatment of people based on their appearance and their culture is universally reviled as just this abhorrent human shit that yeah. just we all deeply are horrified by this because of political progress that's happened through various modes of organizing various diverse tactics. You can now place that rebellion in the context of this like larger struggle yeah. that redeems it despite the back steps that you can connect to it at the same time. Yeah. I just I just wanted to kind of like plant a flag in the ground of being like I'm not a complete pacifist. I think complete pacifism is a basically unworkable position. Like I think if you want to be a complete pacifist, that's a that's an admirable practice for yourself but i think believing that everyone in your struggle should be a pacifist is misguided and doesn't make sense like there's just so many historical examples you can think of of where violence is justified like even even just broadly like indigenous resistance to european colonization on the north american continent like it's hard to say they didn't have a right to fight back against the people genociding them, like justified violence right there. You know, <laughs> another thing I read said that the invention of the longbow played a huge role in the end of feudalism because it uh, was an effective weapon that could be used at a distance that could pierce the armor of knights and could be cheaply produced in great numbers. So it increased the power of the peasants relative to the knights. So it's like, you think about peasants shooting at knights who are like, their overlords in this serfdom setup of feudalism and you're like yeah yeah some justified violence even if at the time maybe some of the other serfs are like what good does shooting knights do then they just come and <laughs> crack down on us even harder you know <laughs> so I, I don't know yeah i don't know I, I just i think it's naive to fully abhor violent tactics in all situations i think you got to be a bit more pragmatic than that 
Hey, oh, Matthias, what are you doing there? Making an arrow? You know, we're supposed to be tilling the soil. Okay, no, I hear you. You know, the feudal lords are bad. Yeah, I don't like the feudal lords. Yeah, no, yeah but, definitely not. But those knights, they're a lot stronger than us. They've got better armor. they got horses. They're well-nourished. We're just peasant tillers out here. We, we can't stand up to them. Yeah, I mean, dude... Like, if we could beat the knights, maybe I'd be on your side, but it just kind of seems hopeless. And, like, you're just this one guy making these arrows to shoot at knights, and they're probably just going to kill us. Just think about it this way. What if we stand up to the knights, we stand up to the king, we shoot them with arrows, we ward them off, and, you know, it feels good in the moment. It's cathartic. We finally stood up to them. But then the next day, the knights come back. They went back. They got medical attention. They got backup. They come here and they raise the village. They take our women and children from us and they leave us to bleed. Yeah, burn death. all our buildings down. Our kids are just screaming around on fire. Soil's untilled. We're dead. <laughs> you, might like, miss, you might miss tilling soil then. I mean, God, just go till the soil. You're being lazy. Like, till the soil in the morning. You can get as much done as you can by, like, mid-afternoon. Maybe you can spend the end of the afternoon with your wife and kids. It's not it's a like, big... We just work till. hard. You wake up, you till. You get a little more tilling after lunch, then you're good to go. You can spend the rest of the day with your family. It's not the life I would choose, but it's... It, it, it's you know, someone has to do it. Who, yeah, who else is going to Who's going to do it? Who's going to till? Are the noblemen going to come down here and till? <laughs> stop, stop. He's uh, just kidding. So we need to overthrow feudalism. Oh, you know, we need to stand up for ourselves. It's like, hmm, where's the sun at in the sky? Oh tilling time yeah it's mid-morning my field's already half tilled his field is more than half tilled you're better you. than me yeah, your you. field how's your field doing not on even tilling? tilled at all hmm. how's that going to reflect on us we're your neighbors how do you think the lord's going to feel about an untilled field i wouldn't risk it he doesn't check every day but if he does check yeah. uh, i hope you made a lot of arrows and i'm not sure you're going to find anyone to back you up because my field is tilt. His field is tilt. Yeah, I'm not getting in trouble. Yeah, I'm going right back out there after I'm done with this conversation. Just trying to help you. Yeah, we're taking our break to help you. So think about that as you make your arrows to stand mm. up to feudalism. Grow up. You're being immature. God. What do you want to get out of this? A horse? Yeah. A horse. Imagine a peasant with a horse. Dude, you're dirty. You I can mean, ride like, a horse. You know, I don't even know how your wife deals with this. My wife would be absolutely in tears if I came home at the end of the day and the field wasn't tilled because she knows that she's going to be punished too. Like, how do you, you're doing this to your wife? Yeah, this isn't just about you. Are you expecting us to till the field for you? Because I'm telling you right now, that's not fair. Nuh-uh. No, no, buddy. No, 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 no. No, no, no. no. Okay, well, I'm going to go till my field. Um, Yeah, better get back to tilling. Better get back. So we'll see you on the field, I guess. Um, Finish another arrow. Okay, well, I got to go till, so bye. Mm -hmm. Till another time. time. Yeah. (laughs) Till next time. (laughs) Till, uh, where's the sun at in the sky? Oh, tilling time. Let's go. There's another thing that greatly, greatly concerns liberals in the pejorative sense of liberal, like the left-wing pejorative sense of liberal. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, the, <laughs> like liberal one, liberal two, liberal three, we have all these different... Yeah, d- d- the, the specific one that a, a radical leftist would leverage towards a more center leftist. There's Another thing these liberals are very concerned with is direct action and times where you're taking political action without getting appropriate permission from the authorities. So say having a pl- 
planned protest route that the police are aware of ahead of time to keep everyone safe. Right. Or yeah, you got a permit for your protest. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or doing a banner drop off the side of a building where it's actually against bylaws to go on the top of the building that's not allowed. Like this type of concern. Do you even own that building? Is that your property or is that owned by a company? <laughs> you're you're talking about want? trespassing in order to make a political point? Uh, I thought we were supposed to be the good guys. <laughs> And now you're talking about trespassing. Um, (laughs) But there's a whole spectrum of political action. Direct action is just the basically the broad idea of taking a political action because it needs to be done in some way with the goal of having some sort of purpose. So an example of a small scale direct action might be something like taking your march off of the sidewalk and bringing it into the street and walking in the street instead of on the sidewalk, interrupting the flow of traffic and taking up more public space Mm -hmm. uh, without getting appropriate permissions first to get a permitted parade. That's a type of direct action. And I've actually been, when I was younger, I can remember a time that a protest I was with was doing that. And I was one of the people who was like, oh, guys, I don't know about this road (laughs) stuff. Um, (laughs) Yeah. But to quote Martin Luther King Jr. and his letter from Birmingham jail, he supported nonviolent direct action, which is a whole nother spectrum of things that concerns liberals. He said, nonviolent direct action seeks to create such a crisis and foster such a tension that a community which has constantly refused to negotiate is forced to confront the issue. It seeks so to dramatize the issue that it can no longer be ignored. So in, to contextualize that quote, you can think of something like the direct action of Rosa Parks sitting in the white area of the bus. Right. She's violating the law to dramatize the issue of racism and and bring attention to it. Some other famous direct actions from history that I found interesting, and which I also got from this book, Direct Action by L.A. Kaufman. I mentioned at the beginning, the Mayday tribe did something where they aimed to shut down the U.S. government by putting blockades at a bunch of stations in Washington, D.C. So the traffic wouldn't be able to move, people wouldn't be able to go to work, and the government wouldn't be able to function. They distributed a tactical manual that highlighted 21 bridges and intersections to block and suggested tactics for how to block them. So having your car stall out, building impromptu barricades or putting lines of people with locked arms. And this was all a statement against what the government was doing with the war. They're saying, we're going to undermine the function of your government because we're so opposed to this war that's been going on for so long and is so violent that we hate. Vietnam. Vietnam. The attorney general under Nixon, John Mitchell, got wind of this plan because the tactical manual was distributed widely. And as a result of that, sent in the National Guard, the Army, the Marines, and the police to shut down the event. Because this actually posed a real threat. This wasn't just holding up signs that had a snarky phrase about like Nixon is bad, said in a funny way. Interfering with the road traffic in Washington could really fuck shit up. And especially if you're talking about like stalling cars there or stalling multiple cars in a row Mm. and you have to get a tow truck in where there's a bunch of cars stuck. There's a lot of logistical stuff to figure out there. So they ended up arresting a, a quote from one of the protesters quoted in this book is they locked up anyone who looked freaky. Um, so they arrested 70s. over 7,000 people in Washington, D.C. that day. Oh, it's shit. one of the largest mass arrests in U.S. history. And afterwards, the event uh, was universally panned as the worst planned, worst executed, most obnoxious peace action ever committed. Um, but 
again, historically, at the time it was seen as like, oh, this big failure. They all got arrested so quick. They got all these right. criminal records. They like achieved nothing. Like th- it didn't achieve the ends at all. Right, right. But part of the reason it didn't achieve anything at all is because it posed such a real threat to the government that they immediately and swiftly shut it down because they have the power of the military on their side, which is something that any hand wringing liberal will tell you from the start. Yeah, yeah. There's no point because they have all the weapons, and what? What do you? Your guerrilla cells going to resist the U.S. Army? Like, good luck. <laughs> yeah, but similar to um, that kind of slave revolt, which seems superficially a failure, in the long run of history, you can actually look at it as a kind of success, and that they were one of the ways that the pressure was put on the government to end the Vietnam War. It's hard to argue that there was an absolute zero contribution of this effort to the overall effort against the Vietnam War and the successes that it managed to eventually have. There was also, there was an earlier protest organized by CORE Brooklyn, which uh, was associated with the civil rights movement. Less than a hundred people achieved this. There was a world fair in New York and the plan was to have a stall in and very similarly stalling cars in major roadways, having the cars actually run out of fuel. So they'd have to be refueled or towed to get out of there. Right. Um, They distributed flyers in all the black neighborhoods around Brooklyn saying, we're going to do this. We're going to attack the world's fair and we're going to use this to make the case that the municipal state and federal governments need to take action on housing, education and police brutality. This proved so controversial that the national director of CORE, or C-O-R-E, suspended the Brooklyn chapter from the organization because it was too radical. It posed too much of a real threat. What Zizek would call like systemic violence, where he said that there's a Zizek quote where he's talking about how Gandhi was very violent in a systemic sense and that he interfered with business. But the Stalin, although not many people actually showed up on the day of to do the Stalin in part due to the controversy, it was a success because the controversy around this plan was so widely reported that the World's Fair had significantly decreased attendance because people thought it was going to happen. Right. right, So the threat of it happening, they fucked with the bottom line of the World's Fair, which was part of their uh, their goal. And got people talking about it anyway, like, which is usually the goal of a protest. I mean, well, like the ultimate goal is like fix the problem, but (laughs) getting people talking about it helps. And an example of a, I think, just unambiguously successful direct action. Hmm. There was an activist group in the United States called the Citizens Commission to investigate the FBI, which in 1971 burgled an FBI field office (laughs) and found documents that they then sent to news agencies but very importantly, they discovered the COINTEL program, which is the famous program that... Oh, in- shit. That's how it came out? That's oh, how yeah. the- oh, I should let you summarize it before. Sorry. Go ahead. That, that is how it came out. Jesus. Um, so the, the reason that we found out that the FBI and the US government was infiltrating activist movements and trying to undermine them in various ways and was specifically targeting Martin Luther King and other prominent activists trying to specifically undermine their efforts is because a group called the Citizens Commissions to Investigate the FBI broke into an FBI field office in an amazing and hilarious way, which is that they scoped the area out. They had a lock pick who was able to pick through most average low-level locks. Uh But there was one locked door that couldn't be picked. It was too much of like a fancy lock or like a high-end lock. And it's also where the goods were behind. So they scoped out the behavior in this FBI field base and they left a handwritten note on that door that says, please leave this door unlocked. (laughs) 
<laughs> and because so they like they, snuck in like a day before or something or the yes yeah right, so they left a note there they, so they they left a note on this locked door that's like this impenetrable locked door they weren't able to get through that says please leave this door unlocked which is masterful social engineering because it seems like an innocuous request from like a co-worker that there'd be a reason for that you could yeah, find out yeah. later etc and if your place doesn't have extremely intense security practices i could imagine falling for that note you know oh yeah 100 percent. so as a result they were able to get in there grab a handful like just indiscriminate handfuls of fbi documents which they then stuffed into envelopes and sent to a bunch of media organizations <laughs> among that was the revelation that the fbi was infiltrating activist movements which again uh, so badass it, yeah it was per, it's a it's, it's an amazing direct action stunt it's systemically violent it's not interpersonally violent um, yeah nobody got hurt physically and uh, the church committee which is the term people typically use for the select committee to study governmental operations with respect to intelligence activities of the u.s senate it was a u.s senate inquiry into COINTELPRO that found that COINTELPRO was illegal and officially it kind of ended the practice of infiltrating activist movements so Again, that institutional assist is key to this success. And there's a diversity of tactics there. There was, on one hand, there was the fucking rough and tumble direct action, social engineering, break in, get the documents, pass it on to the news. Then there's also the newspaper. Our job is to report to the public. And also a, a good number of the documents they sent out, these newspapers never reported on because they were, I think there's a combination of things, but part of it was the uneasiness of reporting on classified material. Right, right, right. And the origins of it. So there's a lot of- there there, was, there, There's some judgment involved in deciding, oh, this COINTELPRO thing, this is the thing that the public needs to know. That like, out of all these documents like yeah maybe some of this is interesting whatever that that's the that editorial or like decision of yeah that's journal that's like journalism, the skill of yes, journalism yes, right exactly yeah um, and but i think there's also an element of like a spine thing like there might be newsworthy documents that were sent out but they were sent to organizations that didn't have the spine to report on them right it just right, so right. happened that COINTELPRO got to the right place where someone had the journalistic oversight to see that it was newsworthy and they had the spine to report it and then as a result of that assist then there was a public outcry which is in the world of this like sort of puritan like oh my god my government can't do that mm -hmm. like so you're yeah. you're reaching really across the aisle there beyond radicals yeah and saying like this is morally wrong this is something that doesn't fit in our society and it's something that you can agree with even if you're not a long-haired hippie freak like us right and then also within the diversity of tactics there there's the tactic of the people within the fbi the fbi institution itself initiating this church commission did you say church commission yeah the church committee it was a senate a senate oh, investigation oh, okay. okay similar to the senate investigation that's going on right now with with uh, uh, trump yeah yeah i just i like <laughs> the, you keep bringing up this institutional assist and then just framing that within the diversity of tactics thing it really captured my imagination the idea that these senate committees and these these original activists who broke into the fbi office and indiscriminately stole documents were part of the same ecology of tactics 
the same system of tactics that helped bring about this positive result. So you you want to give props to both of those things. And it's similar to the Martin Luther King and the Black Panthers. Or There's this more polished, public, respectable face. And then there's also the the yang to that yin, the yin to that yang. That's like this more violent thing. These people breaking in, stealing documents, shooting KKK people are threatening to. And it's like this duality between those two aspects, both being present in so many positive historical progressions that we can point to. We can point to both the nonviolent narrative and the violent narrative or the at least the legal action narrative. So people can make either case, but the case that fascinates me is that they're they're interrelated and both important. Another example of this kind of interrelation that we could probably analyze is uh, Richard Spencer getting punched. Yeah. I think the meme of Richard Spencer getting punched indirectly led to Richard Spencer losing his verified status on Twitter to like Stormfront having their domain register close them down and their servers get right, closed right, down. Right, right. So it's all these institutional assists to the fight against the modern fascist sort of Nazi creep that we're seeing. Yeah, yeah. Um, the Stormfront thing is a good one for institutional assists because, yeah, it's just like these large faceless corporations <laughs> deciding... No, we're not going to, you registered you with us? No, dropping you. You registered with us? No, dropping, like happening a bunch of times in succession. Uh, really like putting a, a, a fly in their ointment is funny. I, I was also just like, I don't know how this point fits in or if it fits in, but there's so much iconic media imagery of Nazi punching. Like there's like Captain America in the fifties, like punching people with Nazi armbands, inglorious bastards talking about killing Nazis, punching Nazis. It just struck me the idea that punching Nazis is something that's been like glorified in the mainstream media for decades. And when somebody actually does it, people get all upset, but it's just like, well, I mean... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> We've kind of been telling everyone that this is okay for years and years and years. Yeah, that institutional assist from all the major media companies. Yeah, the Hollywood organizations showing like Nazis as being people worthy of being punched. Yeah, and I guess in fighting like the modern Nazis, we've also got kind of just a general institutional assist from like the historical U.S. empires. Yeah, w- war. right, right, right. <laughs> like that, that war made Nazis very unpopular among yeah. pretty much everyone. And that was partially public relations, you know, that was... Yeah, there yeah, was yeah. the the military public relations aspect of that. It's definitely one of the cards in our hand against Richard Spencer and scum like him. And now it's time for Wrong Boys Dictionary Time, and the word of the day is utope. A utope is a utopian-like step forward. It's a single step towards a utopia. It's not a full utopia. It's just a discrete goal that has been achieved that palpably moves us forward towards a better society. So like an example of a utope, an easy one would be the invention of penicillin. Before penicillin, people dying of a lot of bacterial diseases. After penicillin, a lot less people dying of bacterial diseases. More like utopia, a single achievement brought us a bit closer to that end goal. That's it this week for Wrong Boys Dictionary Time.
Uh, well, thank you for staying here, Jim, after class. I noticed, you know, we got this great utopian school here. Well, you said I had to stay, so it's, I mean, it's great for you. It's not yeah, that great for me. Well, some mm. kids need the one-on-one -on -one attention mm, to yeah. really wrap their head around this stuff. So today we were covering the key concept of the utope. Now, a utope is any major step forward, any new plateau in human relations and science, technology, the social realm, even something like, say, the change in government from the Bush administration to the Obama administration. You could arguably say that there's enough of a, a real difference between these two administrations to count as a minor a type of utope. Um, so, so, and that could be something. Teacher, yes. Just like anything that we can kind of talk about why it was kind of good a little bit. It's all a utope, like utope is just anything that's kind of good. And it's not anything that's kind of good. It's any time where there is a new rise in baseline. A utope has a little more staying power than just being a fleeting moment. So my mom giving me a kiss because she loves me, not a utope. Yeah, no, absolutely not. But say your mom starting to consistently give you an allowance that could be seen as sort of a utope within your world. It's not a society world utope. And this is key to utopianism is the ultimate goal of the utopian practice is to develop new and exciting utopes for society, for everyone at large, to make these breakthroughs that carry significant weight and ideally create this new baseline. So a, a, another great example of a utope um, through a political system would be comprehensive campaign finance reform and electoral reform to a proportional system. If you pulled that off both at once, boom, that's a heck of a utope. What about killing all the kulaks? Was that a utope, teacher? Because the Soviets certainly thought so. It wasn't a utope when people were killed, no. But it was a utope in the instances where there were revolutionary socialist countries that, uh, say, eliminated poverty for a larger percentage of the population or eliminated illiteracy. Places like Cuba, where there's a high rate of li literacy, you could see that as, as a utope. But teacher, I just mean, like, why are we calling it utopes and utopian when the history of utopia is kind of drenched in blood? I'm going to write something up on the board. I want you to read it out loud as I write it, okay? Okay. Not drenched in blood. So that's what utopias are. They're not drenched in blood. So you're mistaken there. But the promise of utopia historically has led to a lot of blood. Now, and th this is really key. This is basic. This is 101, utopian 101 stuff. Is that the promise of a utopia, a completed utopia, should be treated with huge suspicion. It's a key point and purpose of utopian practice to take step by steps, make footholds, new plateaus, the horizon's always moving. You can't have a committed utopian practice with a finished idea of utopia, especially one that's promised in the short term. It's not un-utopian to dream of. It's not un-utopian to write about and consider. It's un-utopian to promise. I'm superstitious about that. So we'll never have to kill millions of people to make a utope? Well, it certainly it strikes me as unlikely. Okay, because I'm just against killing millions of people. That's why I had a problem with this whole utope thing. Yeah, you know, some people really associate killing millions of people with utopia, and it's really important that we separate those. Hmm, okay. Maybe you did have something useful to tell me then. I didn't know oh, well, that. that's attitude. Here, I'm going to write this on the board. Can you say it out loud as I write it? I kind of have to. Okay, say it. Hold the 
attitude. And there you go. That's what you have to do. Okay. So okay. I'll see you tomorrow it's when in the morning when all the kids are here? Yeah, we can just do normal classes now. I don't have to be alone with you. Sorry, it doesn't... Alone, that sounds weird. It's detention slash tutoring. It's really normal. It's normal, but it sucks. And I'm, I am alone with you. No one else is in the room. Yeah, it just kind of sounded weird. I'm not accusing you of touching me. I appreciate that, but also I appreciate you not pointing out that you're not doing that also. Because it's just... <laughs> Okay, I'm going. Okay, bye. Goodbye. So yeah, violence is one tactic. Yeah, and then even that, it's not a tactic in itself. And I think this is part of the point of the pro-diversity of tactics people, is that like the strong differentiation between violence and nonviolence is kind of misleading. Like you've stepped into some completely different world when there's so much middle ground between like an armed militia and like asking the city for a marching permit. Yeah. Or even an armed militia and throwing a bottle through a Starbucks window. Like you can call those both the type of violent violence on property. I don't know. Anyway, there's so many potential utopes out there for us to focus on and achieve so many, so many goals that are possible. When I think about diversity of tactics, that's what I think about. Like I, I think about how much there is to do and how many different ways there are to do those things. And it's just like this whole world opens up. Like to have a tactic for anything, you need a tactic is towards a goal. Tactics for achieving a better society, for, for making the world a better place. Like if that's not your goal, I mean, it should at least be to not make it a worse place. I'm okay with that. But if your goal is to make the world a better place, there's, there's a lot of different things that you can do to do that. And like, if you're in your heart of hearts, what you really want to do is start an armed militia and go fight bad guys somewhere. Then I mean, like, I guess go do that. Like choose your bad guys. Well, sure. But for most of us, like we don't all have the stomach for that. I'm not really into that. I don't want to take part in an armed militia. So within diversity of tactics, there's a whole lot of other things that we can do. And that's a wonderful thing. Yeah. yeah and, and most of the tactic spectrum, and you used the term earlier, ecology of tactics, which I really liked. And I think prefer to diversity of tactics. Yeah, I got it from um, you. <laughs> okay. Um, I think I've run into it in a couple of places. One of which I recall is inventing the future. Ecology of tactics is mentioned. Oh, okay. I, I actually thought you had made it up. So that's interesting. Yeah, I take no credit for that. But an ecology of tactics implies kind of like a complementarity between the tactics. So you could look at the example of some of those institutional assists we mentioned earlier as being part yeah. of an ecology of tactics. Yeah, the the two sides of the coin, the yin and the yang, the illegal and the the public respectable side of things are part of the same ecology. That's I like that metaphor too, yeah. Diversity of tactics could also kind of apply to like a taxonomy of tactics, the different varieties of possible actions that can be taken. Mm -hmm. And in that spectrum, when I was kind of thinking it over, I was able to identify three major schools of thought that sometimes overlap. There's the organizing within systems. So that could be running for office, organizing political action to do with institutions. That could be through like letter writing campaigns to CEOs or politicians. It could be getting jobs within fields that are specialized around targeting the issues that are related to it. Working like, for some NGOs. Yeah, yeah, working through a legal NGO system, even stuff like shareholder activism, which I'm not super well versed 
Marston, but from my understanding, it's like you buy a percentage of the company to get on the board of directors and then try to get the board of directors to change the direction of the company in some way. Uh, it's something for our rich, uh, rich tacticians to participate in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, another category would be organizing the presentation of ideas. So this is actually a really wide spectrum of things that can include protests and demonstrations, rallies, but also writing newspapers or articles, making cartoons or memes, writing and releasing platforms, making video content, making podcasts, even just like your social media feed as a form of presenting information. And if it's used as a political tactic, I think it's a valid thing within the, the realm of diversity of tactics. Like, for example, we, we know that great gains were made in, in civil liberties for black people in America because of people talking and sharing ideas on it. That was also part of the process, along with some of the other things mentioned earlier in the episode. And the third category is a fascinating type of organizing that's just a little bit different than the others, and that's prefigurative organizing. So prefigurative organizing can refer to both something that's direct action, like feeding the homeless. I want to see a world where people are eating food, so I'm going to prefigurative, like just make a reality where people are eating food. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. yeah, prefigurative politics is kind of a unity between means and ends a lot of the time where yeah. you're creating the world that you wish to see through your actions. Yeah. So yeah, it could be feeding homeless people directly, or it could be something like the Occupy camps where you're building a microcosm of society within society to a certain degree and trying new democratic mechanisms and stuff like that. That's prefigurative. Mm -hmm. So I, I just want to kind of want to underline prefigurative politics because I think there's something profound at work with really, really good prefigurative politics when it's working really effectively and you're doing what needs to be done rather than asking permission and just going and doing it and like making the results finished. Like housing, so instead of asking City Hall to house someone, you're housing that person yourself. And I, I, I don't, I don't want to put the, the onus on activists to do everything. And I've had a friend point this out to me when I talked about prefigurative politics is that we take a lot on and we say like, oh, it's on us to feed the homeless. It's on us to house the homeless, mm -hmm. all this stuff, even though we don't have the power to. And there's people, there's motherfuckers who do have the power to, <laughs> Yeah, you right, know, right, and like right. they yeah. really, really have the power to, and they could do it on a dime. And we don't have that option. It, we have to work our ass off to house and feed some of the homeless. So it's not fair for us to take it on ourselves. But at the same time, I think there's something really special and, and kind of magical about when you can create the world that you want to see without permission. So I think prefigurative politics are kind of a special, cool thing. Yeah, I yeah, I, I agree with that. And I also really like the aspect of prefigurative politics of like, if we're proposing radical new ways of organizing society or groups, like you need test cases for that or test centers or like you need to try out actually organizing in these ways. Like you don't develop new modes of organizing just on paper. That's useless and means nothing. Like you have to actually try them out and see like what you bump up against, what the problems become, and then you can criticize and work on it and refine it. It's a laboratory of social organization or of trying things out. And th these categories can also kind of overlap with each other in different ways. Like for example, a prefigurative presentation of ideas, you, you could have a protest that in one sense is trying to promote ideas in another sense as prefigurative, like Occupy is a good example of that. Or within organizing and systems, you could even think of someone like Bernie Sanders or Gene Swanson as kind of a prefigurative system organizer because they're embodying the type of politician 
that they'd like there to be more of in the future. And so in that sense, there's kind of a prefigurative element to it of just rather than kind of like an institutionalized politician sense of like, oh, I'm going to try to slowly move the way that we talk about politics over time. Like I'm going to play by the rules of the game and get inside and try to push it ever forward towards mm-hmm. where I want to go. It's like on the outside, they're like, no, we're going to talk and think about these things differently. We're going to get lots of people involved. This is what politics should be like. So I'm going to start doing it now. So there's kind of a prefigurative glimmer to it, I think. Whew. Say, Aaron, I'm uh, I'm getting tired of all this show we've been doing. Do you want to take a little break, uh, crack open a bottle of wine, sit by the fire, and just sort of brainstorm generally tactics for bringing about a better world for all? I would love to. White? White wine? Ooh. Could I ask for sparkling? Is that okay? Oh, wow. Yeah, devilish. Do you mind if I be I a little like devilish it. and ask for some sparkling? Sparkling. This I just bubbly. I have champagne right here. I'll pour you a little glass. I'll pour me a little glass. Oh, the heat from the fire is nice. It's comforting. And this glass you gave me is so much wider than your glass. Guilty as charged. Oh, you know what I just remembered? Here, look what's inside my messenger bag. (laughs) Crackers and brie. Well, that's a tactic to make this session of sitting by the fire and drinking wine even more delightful. Well, actually, that does remind me of just a good practice for political organizing is to feed people, make them comfortable, make them feel home. I mean, that pretty much applies for anything that you're trying to achieve. I mean, anything with a group of people, you get that food food. and that's a magnet. Well, I got to say this brie that you brought is perfect. Where did you get it? It's Costco. Uh, I'm a Costco freak. Weird thing. Actually, that reminds me of a tactic. Like if you're someone who happens to maybe own a company like Costco, you could do what Costco does and pay more than the minimum wage, pay people fair, generous wages with good benefit packages and long vacations. And I'm sure there's some fair criticisms of Costco to be made, but they're known for having unionized staff. And just generally a great tactic is to organize your workplace into a union and, and fight for better work conditions for you and your fellow employees and also fight for the uh, the company to make better ethical decisions if possible. I love that tactic. It's a great tactic and it's got a long history of working. Yeah. One tactic could be to go to journalism school and then make it your life's work to uncover important stories and communicate them effectively to society through, you know, investigative rigor and rhetorical competence. Oh, that is a great tactic. I'll drink to that. (laughs) Uh, Cheers. Oh, I just remembered this wonderful tactic and it's not used often enough. The basic idea, you want to throw a carnival, kind of a street carnival for a political purpose. You have people dressed up in tutus like unicorns, like giraffes. You have people on stilts if they want to. It's just a carnival of wildness and funness and people being goofy and being themselves and having funny signs. But themed around an issue, say we we might pick an important issue like say fighting war, just as an example. So you have this carnival of fun and games and silliness, but at the same time you have what we would call credibility guards. People who are wearing nice suits, they look professional, says, we can change the world for the better, here's the information about it. You've got this detailed report that looks very professional, it's well done by a graphic designer, explains exactly what needs to happen from the view of your movement, but then also you've got this 
wonderful street carnival. You've got a diversity of tactics, an ecosystem within the single event. Another tactic I was thinking of, going a little more mundane with this, is that, I don't know about you, but I think a lot of people who went through school can point to one or two teachers throughout their school career who, you know, just people kind of recognize as, oh, that teacher is really good. They, they connect with the kids and really impart something. And I was thinking about how important that is to have engaged adults interacting with the youth. If you could be a fourth grade teacher and you made it your mission to awaken a utopian spark within every kid that passed through your classroom, that's a lot of kids. That's a lot of people whose lives you can touch. That's a lot of change you can make in the world. That's a thing that a lot of people wouldn't think of as being a political tactic, but I think it's totally a political tactic. Yeah, and that utopian spark is something that's strongly present in the potentialities of being a teacher, but it's also mildly possible in pretty much any field of work or any field of, of living your life is yeah. trying to bring the implanting of that utopian spark with you where you go, I think is a noble form of revolutionary politics. I, I, I think that's a great tactic. Yeah, I love the broadening of it to really any social interaction. I heard somewhere that we are only three or four relationships away from everyone on the planet. Like, you know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody. You basically have covered the whole planet. So, so we're all connected really deeply in this mesh of interconnecting social fabric. So the way that you present yourself in the social sphere can be a revolutionary good. I, uh, I noticed we're both out. Can I tempt you for another glass of the bubbly? You know what? I think we've had a, a little bit too much fun for right now. We should maybe get back to work, okay, finish yeah. the show. Finish the show. All right. So we can drink the wine when we're done to celebrate. Well, it was fun sitting down with you. This was a blast. Always a pleasure. Something else you were talking about a moment ago, the the idea of we take so much on, you know, it can overwhelm people, it can make people lose hope, it can just beat you down <laughs> until you feel like there's no point anymore. So I like I'm I'm really sensitive to that being a problem with I guess utopian thinking in general or just politics in general because so many of the problems seem so intractable and so huge and daunting and overwhelming that I think it's really important and this is why I love the utope framing to rather than saying I want to end all racial discrimination and racism like yes that's the goal that's the end goal but like what's some specific positive implementable goals that you can set and achieve with a group of other people in the near future so that's like launch a new magazine that puts out the particular perspective of your politics and your friends politics on racial issues or a direct action against a particular police force that has a really bad track record of dealing with black Americans, like something that would specifically impact that police force and maybe cause policy change with one of those institutional assists. Getting to really specific goals, like the best thing that you can imagine achieving that you actually think is possible if you put some work into it. It's really useful to ask yourself the question of what is is that thing? And then what do I need to 
do in order to move towards that goal? So do I need more people? Do I need more skills? Do I need to organize something? Like the the steps will become clearer when you have a specific goal, a specific thing that you want to achieve rather than this just like vague, indirected rage at the whole neoliberal capitalist patriarchal system of society and like, oh, it sucks so much and I have a million reasons why it sucks. That's great. But like, here's a specific thing I want to do to fight back against that. And here's all the steps that it'll take for me to get towards that specific thing. It's so satisfying to achieve those things. It inspires hope rather than sapping hope. It's a utope, gets you one step closer to the utopia. And just when I think about diversity of tactics, like you said, the violence and stuff, it's such a small spectrum of just the realm of what's possible for creating good change in society. It's like there's so much in that rainbow to choose from. Maybe this is kind of like utopian horseshoe theory on my part, but I feel like the size of violence and the size of voting are about the same size on the political spectrum. (laughs) Um, They're both important important parts sometimes on this wide spectrum of things but to talk about either one of them alone is just such a mind-numbingly small conversation yeah if that's the limit of your political engagement is once the militia gets started up or every four years when i get to vote like yeah it's pretty limited in both cases and if you want to take voting really seriously then you need to start thinking about uh, organizing you need to start thinking about swing ridings marginal ridings you need to start thinking about public relations you need to start thinking yeah, about door knocking like, yeah, phone yeah, yeah. calls you need to start thinking about mobilizing people to vote like this is what political organization is about and i think that's a decent chunk of the spectrum but voting alone is just no wonder people shit on it but like it's part of this yeah. bigger system of action and i think the same thing is the preparation for the hypothetical day where your armed militia needs to take some territory i don't know what historical context people are going to listen to the show in. maybe maybe that's going to become a worryingly important uh, thing quite soon yeah yeah. Uh, so having that preparation around in some sense or another i think it's it's a valid chunk of the spectrum but also the things around it which i I think in order to have any meaningful attempt at taking (laughs) some taking some territory and some sort of all-out civil war situation Mm. (laughs) That's going to involve like a lot of community building. That's going to involve a lot of preparation that goes beyond just simply owning a gun and talking about owning a gun. Also in like people don't think of these things as political tactics very often, but politics touches everything. And so like if you're if you're like a very thing oriented person, you're interested in like engineering or designing things or code or something like that inventions, technological inventions can be utopes, can bring us closer to utopian society. Like labor-saving devices are utopes. They just make the world a better place for everyone whose lives they touch, everyone who can afford to buy them. (laughs) I I was thinking about this in terms of technical solutions to intractable moral problems. That phrase, I could say, is a type of a broad category of tactics. But like, to give an example of what I mean, if you talk about abortion rights, like, thankfully, abortion rights have been won in most Western countries, like women can get abortions. Uh, You know, there's 
difficulties and things all the time going on in America, especially around that. But the civil right has generally been won in a lot of places. But like the moral debate behind that, it's it's going to be hard, I think, to imagine creating a world where nobody believes that the termination of an otherwise viable pregnancy is not morally problematic. Like there's no facts to point to in that thing. It's a issue of values. And so it was something that I thought of as an intractable moral debate. And one of the ways that we sidestep that debate is contraception. And I mean, yes, like people also have moral problems with contraception, but I think it's taken a lot less seriously. And if so- if someone invented a technology that was perfect contraception, like you could just like press a little button on your phone and then you know that you're going to shoot blanks until you press the button and like turn it back on. Or like a woman knows that her egg will not be fertilized. If that perfect contraception existed, there would still probably be instances where people need abortions. But in large measure, it would make the debate irrelevant because you've made a technical solution that makes unwanted pregnancies an almost non-issue. And I think... The broad category of tactics that involve designing technical solutions to intractable moral problems is a really interesting and fundamental category of tactics. Like I'm, I'm much more interested in that category of tactics than in the category of tactics that includes violence because of my liberal heart. I just like the technology better. And <laughs> I don't know. (laughs) It's not a category of tactics and utopes that everyone has equal access to at all times. I think that's Mm, uh, a a criticism to make of it. But the pull of the revolutionary breakthrough that makes the problem obsolete is definitely very uh, strong to me as well. Another example I've thought of of those types of moral problems and like technological solutions to them is... um, on the subject of like gun rights, if you could have a technological immobilizer that had some accountability to it, that you could immobilize someone temporarily, there's a limited use of it. The guns themselves are like tied to identity, can only be fired by the one person. You know, there's like an accountability to mm-hmm. when it's being used and you need to make a defense that the use of it was warranted and stuff like that. Yeah. It can get rid of a lot of the need for uh, good guys to have a gun also. It's like good guys have something better than a gun that doesn't yeah. kill the guy. Uh, and definitely like whatever the utopian replacement for police ends up being, them having immobilizers could remove the excuse for a lot of killing of unarmed people that happens. Yeah, I think non-lethal detainment is a pretty basic thing to ask of our law overlords. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah definitely. <laughs> that's a concession that that I think we could squeeze out of them pretty fast. Yeah, that's, it seems like an achievable goal. And it also involves a technical solution, like finding new, like you said, ways of non-lethally detaining people, immobilizers or whatever. And then the political will to force those through, be like, no, you don't get guns anymore. You don't need guns. I know they have a gun and they could kill you because they're the bad guy, but mm-hmm. you're not going to shoot them back. You're going to yeah. immobilize them. Having the capacity to kill them back is something that we're bigger than now yeah especially if you don't need it like if it's your only option fine but it's not it's not it's not the only option now and it's definitely not the only option that could exist if we put our minds to it yeah 
Um, and this is something I like about the flexibility of the term utope as well as like when you're talking about police officers, the institution of the police still exists. They still unevenly enforce the law. They still disproportionately target poor people and racialized people with the execution of the law. But instead of carrying fucking guns and clubs, they have non-lethal immobilizers that prevent people from being harmed in the right, process right, right, of being detained. Right. That's a utope. That's a little utope. It's a pretty big utope, that, actually. Yeah, it's actually a pretty big When utope, you look at like all the opinion. people who die from this fucking shit. I mean, like, it's not going to reduce the prison population. It's not going to like fix a lot of the problems with the police. But goddamn, you watch some of those fucking execution videos and tell me that the world wouldn't be a better place if those people had been immobilized. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know, like, <laughs> yeah, it's, <laughs> it's brutal. I know it's a horrible problem and it's, it's in, in tackling a horrible problem seriously. I think you have to break, that's one way that this breaks up into component parts where you can not neutralize the problem, but undermine the severity of it to a certain degree or like there's big utopes and small utopes. Like we mentioned earlier, like the transition from Bush to Obama all sorts of things to criticize about what didn't change when that happened. Mm. But having stuff like an attempt at some form of healthcare is a, is a step forward uh, for if, depending on the lens you're looking at it. So there's, there's an argument that it's a type of utope, even though that's a minor step. You From know? the perspective of the people who didn't have healthcare, but then had healthcare that was like super subsidized by the government through the exchanges and stuff. I know that's not everyone in America. I know some people paid more, yada, yada. But for a significant chunk of people who never had health care before who now have health care yeah obama's affordable care act was a utope to people who had prescription for medicinal marijuana and were able to access medicinal marijuana more easily because of the federal government giving the states room in the united states to do that type of stuff that's a utope for them the fact there was recreational legalization before obama got out of office that's a utope like mm. utope is on a scale it's always if it happens and it creates a new plateau it's a utope so yeah, just when you're thinking about diversity of tactics, think to yourself, what's a utope that I want to see achieved that is commensurate with my skills and my interests? And what can I do? Like, what are some steps I can take to get towards that thing? Mm. It's uh, What's a successful ecology of that outcome going to look like? What different component parts are going to be needed? Do I need to talk to my senator or do I need to talk to my mayor or do I need to organize a lot of people or do I need to make some videos? You know, like, yeah, just, yeah do I need to draw a meme? Am I going to make memes on this one front and then I'm going to have someone else writing letters to people at different levels of government or the heads of corporations? Are we going to start a Twitter campaign? Are we going to do a gallery show and sell paintings, raise money for something, give the money to something? Are we going to fix people's bikes just to help them? There's a lot of things on this spectrum of tactics and it's, it's really worth exploring the details between the, the two extremes. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of tactics out there and um, now you know what some of them are. Yeah. It was a pleasure to host for you today. I hope it was a pleasure to listen. And uh, you can reach us online at our website, srsoywrong.com, seriouslywrong.com. Uh, we also accept patronage on Patreon and PayPal keeps the show going and we greatly, greatly appreciate it. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much to everyone who already does that fun fun episode i like this subject yeah me too but something I'm, i care about tactics for making a better world it's a it's two of my broad, favorite things. wonderful things yeah <laughs> tactics and better worlds love them both big fan <laughs> 
Well, see you next week. See you next week. We love you. When you're wrong. Next time on Seriously Wrong, the wrong boys convince everyone to give a damn about how many dumb sheep flock to Washington demonstrations, and they invent dull ceremonies of dissent that actually will stop the war. So that's a, a that's wrap of another one, another one in the in the pile. 141. Done. Nice. Bad. Yeah, still all the editing left, but recording wrapped up. Love it. So I believe we were going to, after we were done, sit by the There's fire. There's still some champagne in that bottle. It is uh, far from empty. Yummy, yummy. Let's do it. Let's, uh, I don't know, what are we going to talk about? Uh, favorite time of day? Let's talk about our favorite time of day. Oh, I love this topic. I got a lot of them. Here's the uh, brie and crackers. I'll just put that right oh, back yeah. there. I've been waiting for these. Sometimes it feels good to be a little devilish and dip into the brie. So you know what? My favorite time of day is, or one of them anyway, I got a lot of favorites, but mm-hmm. right in the morning, I'd say about 20 minutes after you wake up, you know, the sun's oh. coming up. Just everything is building, momentum starting to happen. It's mm-hmm. like mm, 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 just the world coming alive again. Yeah, this thriving moment of, of just like that transition from the sleeping world to the waking one. I couldn't agree more. It's beautiful. It's a great time to till, great time to have breakfast. But you don't, don't want to sleep on afternoon. Afternoon's got some real greatest hits. Sun's at its highest point in the sky of you're the day. You're out and about. Yeah, you know, you're seeing people. Another meal. Lunch. Love lunch. Killer meal. Best part of the um, afternoon. It's a versatile meal, too. It's yeah. versatile. You can really have a lot of different things for lunch. Breakfast food for lunch? That's okay. Dinner food for lunch? That's okay. Yeah, breakfast food for lunch? It's called brunch. That's allowed. Ooh. It's actually encouraged in some cultures. Also, I'm a big fan of early evening, but I'm also a big fan of late evening. Mm-hmm. So I, it's hard to decide between early and late evening. But also, yeah, when you wake up extra early and you get all that extra time in the morning, you know, before like anyone's pre-morning. moving. Yeah, yeah. pre-morning. Oh, I love pre-morning. And mid-morning. People sleep on mid-morning. Sometimes literally. Sometimes literally. <laughs> but also as a concept and as a time of day worth venerating is great. Yeah, I, I couldn't say. agree more. That's 100%. And so it was that the wrong boys finished another episode of the Seriously Wrong podcast. They edited it, made an image, they posted it up on the internet, and were pretty happy with the response they got. They knew that with this episode, they had sent out a political message, but it was impossible for them to know all the ripple effects that that political message would have. And so just a week and a half later, somewhere else in Wrongtown, a young man named Cherence Fleming, known to his friends as Weedlord McBongbong, was listening to their podcast and came to a conclusion that would change his life forever. My skills and my interests, and what can I do? Like, what are some steps I can take to get towards that thing? 
Do I need to talk to my senator? Oh my God, they're right. They're right. Or do I need to make some videos? You know, like, <sighs> do I need to draw me? Call my longtime friend and confidant, front, and Darcy. Then have someone else writing letters to people at different levels of government or the heads of Hey, Weed Lord. Nice to hear from you, man. Hey, how's it going, Darcy? How's it hanging? How are you feeling? It hangs well, and I feel good. Uh, Listen, I've got Blue Tornado, eight bucks a gram. Yeah, no, actually, Darcy, I'm not calling about that this time. Um, Uh Although I will be hitting you up later. Yeah, you Uh, will. Good, sir. Dude, I was just thinking about it, and I was thinking, you know, it's been six years now since Occupy Wrongtown Mm. ended, where I met you, I met chancy i meant the rest of the guys you know six years not a lot of victories on our part i mean we had a hell of a time yeah yeah they got the chalif department installed but you know they're just going through peaches like nobody's business yeah and then we did get a few of those peach of chaliefs to resign which i do see as a victory considering what they did all of them Um, so far so i was digging deep thinking about what needs to happen thinking about the constituents that need to be served i'm pulled by a higher calling darcy i'm going to be running for mayor of wrongtown establishment parties they're not going to rewild wrongtown they're not going to send doctors who vaccinate children to jail they're not going to do things we need to do in our communities like reinstate the gold standard and arm everyone they're not going to do things like free animals from the zoo that's why me, Weed Lord McBongbong, am officially announcing my candidacy for mayor of Wrongtown. Are you with me? I love it. You know, when you first said you were running for mayor, I was like, what, is he sold out on us? Is he going to go corporate? But then I heard that platform and I love that platform. I think you'll find I'm still an outsider. Fight for everyday people. I'm imagining 80 foot tall banners that say Weed Lord on them. You're running as Weed Lord, right? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. This is going to be great. Maybe we get you a suit with like marijuana leaves on it. Yeah, up and down. We need to step it up from legalizing it, but we're going to make this thing mandatory because if the war profiteers, the big businessmen, and all these liars and thieves who have run our country for so long... They forced us to all buy gas. We force them to smoke cannabis every day until they stop war. Cannabis every day until they stop war. You know, I'm writing this down. I'm not letting any of this go to waste. And shit, the mayoral election, it's just four months away. We gotta start the campaign now. So you're gonna knock on some doors, you're gonna call some people. We gotta get fundraising. We don't have any money right now. We gotta hire an entire campaign staff. There's a lot of work to do. I'm committed to serving the people of Wrongtown, so I'll be there shortly. We Lord McBongbong is running for mayor. Posting an ad on Craigslist right now for campaign experts. Okay, that's perfect. If you have to make any decisions before I get there, only pick the best. I'll see you soon. Great advice. Thank you. Uh, 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 out of my way. Uh, 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 you're taking up the whole sidewalk. Uh, 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 I'm the next man in a wrong town. Uh, 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 get, get out of my way. Uh, 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 uh. Lord, I'm glad you're here. I have something huge to tell you. Next time on Seriously Wrong, Wrongtown Adventures, Weed Lord McBongbong runs for mayor. Next time on Wrongtown Adventures with the Wrong Boys, a Seriously Wrong production.